I think a materialist approach to things is very, very consistent with uh, my experience in Christian social justice. I feel like the, the deeper I get into anarchist practice, the deeper my faith is getting at the same time. I would hope that you know, securing means of life for all would be something all people of faith would say, oh yes, that's at the basis of what we believe. Those who are most marginalized know the most about the truth, good and the beautiful. To me, it's less that I think building class solidarity is a bad thing, as much as it seems like if you don't attend to things like anti-black racism, um, that's always going to get in the way of building class solidarity, actually. And when you go back, you find that a lot of uh, revolutionary grassroots participatory movements, the, the precursors to what you could call um, the barrio assemblies and these like, you know, grassroots neighborhood organizations, a lot of these were sponsored by the church. What does it mean to say that the Christian tradition is internally contradictory and there are antagonisms there? Um, you're always uh, being faithful to some aspects and betraying other aspects. Welcome to the Magnificast, a podcast about Christianity and leftist politics. I'm Matt Bernico, and I teach media studies at Greenville University in Greenville, Illinois. And I'm Dean Detloff. I'm a PhD student at the Institute for Christian Studies in Toronto. This week, we're talking with Matt Eisenbrandt, the author of a book, Assassination of a Saint, The Plot to Murder Oscar Romero and the Quest to Bring His Killers to Justice. Matt is a human rights lawyer at the Center for Justice and Accountability who worked on a really wild case involving a man who was connected to the murder of Oscar Romero. Matt has a ton to say, but if you can believe it, there's even more in his book, and you should definitely check it out. There's also a companion website that goes along with the book, in case you don't want the book, but I don't know why that would be the case, um, called assassinationofasaint.com, um, and the website has a bunch of declassified government documents on it and videos of Matt talking, and it's very cool, so let's just like get right into it. Thanks for coming on the show, Matt. Uh, we're really excited to have you. The book is, is so fascinating. When we interview an author, we always ask them to start out giving a little introduction to both themselves, so who are you, and an elevator pitch for your book so that everybody's kind of on the same page. So could you just tell us a little bit about what you do and, and who you are, why you're interested in, in Romero, and what is Assassination of a Saint all about? Uh, sure. I um, So I'm a U.S. trained lawyer, and uh, my... It, assassination of a saint came out of the work that I've been lucky enough to do over my career, which is uh, basically a focus on uh, human rights law and and bringing legal cases that uh, try to help people who are uh, survivors or victims of human rights abuses and trying to hold accountable um, those who are responsible, whether those are governments or individuals or corporations. Um, and that's been that's been the focus of my career. I, I currently work for um, a law firm in Vancouver, Canada, um, and with a specific focus on um, cases against uh, Canadian uh, mining companies uh, that are alleged to be involved in human rights abuses in their operations overseas. So that's that's kind of the the thread that runs through it. And, and assassination of a saint grew out of one of the cases that I was lucky enough to work on very early in my career um, back in 2003 and 2004, uh, because one of the um, people very linked to the assassination of Oscar Romero was actually found to be living in California, not too far away from 
the offices where I worked at the Center for Justice and Accountability in San Francisco. And uh, as a result of him being in California, we launched an investigation that eventually led to to a legal case. And so Assassination of a Saint is the story of that investigation in that case. But also in trying to tell that story, I, I also wanted to make sure that I got into answering the question of why someone like Oscar Romero, who is now a saint, um, could have been murdered. And so, um, you know, what I tried to do with the book was uh, was talk about the the how and by whom, but also about the why. Um, and uh, and that was that was my goal in in writing Assassination of the Saint. Cool. So Oscar Romero is a massive figure, um, in not just the Catholic Church, but also among activists and justice organizations around the world. Um, why do you think his life and story resonate so deeply with so many people? Well, I think there are a couple of reasons. One certainly is that he is one of those rare people who um, who died for what he believed in. He knew that he was going to be killed, and he didn't alter what he was doing. And and uh, that you know in in the Catholic Church, obviously being a martyr has a, has very specific meaning and, and importance. Um, but I think even outside of um, the Catholic world, he was still considered a you know a martyr in in sort of non-religious ways that 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 people might think of. Um, and he is he is somebody who faced down the death squads, faced down the military in El Salvador, um, and continued to speak the truth, even though he knew that that was going to likely lead to his death. I, I think that resonates with a lot of people. Um, but there's also, because of the religious element, with El Salvador at that time being such um, an overwhelmingly Catholic country with such a strong uh, Catholic history, um, and for for somebody to um, basically break with the old traditions where the Catholic Church was considered to be very conservative and very aligned with those in power, and and for Romero to align himself um, somewhat surprisingly with with the poor and the oppressed in in El Salvador, I think also is is a reason that that reson that he he and his message and then his death uh, resonate so much um, with people is the way that he um, that he took what was going on in El Salvador and spoke out. Um, about it in in incredibly brave ways, but always did it through what he believed to be the teachings of the Catholic Church. And, um, you know, so I think for for certainly for Catholics, but but for people of any faith, um, I, I think that has that has a lot of power. And, and I think that um, his um, his courage uh, in doing that is is you know, what, what made him so, uh, so famous and his, his assassination, um, front page news around the world. Yeah. I think that at least resonates with how I've seen Romero get talked about, uh, both in the Catholic church and elsewhere. Um, and maybe you could kind of continue to set the stage a little bit more too, talking about the environment that Romero finds himself in. So he becomes the archbishop of San Salvador 
in a political environment that's controlled by the far right uh, and also challenged by a, a pretty extreme far left. And then there's lots and lots of average people, poor people, uh, et cetera, in between. Um, so could you kind of explain a little bit more of those moving parts? You know, what's the political world that Romero is a part of? Um, you know, you're alluding to kind of the surprise that people had uh, when he didn't turn out to be the conservative bishop that many people uh, maybe had thought that he would be. Um, so could you just describe that scene? You know, what are the kind of political moving parts uh, around him? Yeah, it was a, a very complex situation in El Salvador, but but, you know, in some ways, uh, uh, the 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 dynamics that that led to his assassination um, three years after being named archbishop are um, are pretty clear. So El Salvador was a country with decades of military governments um, and and the repression that came with that. And so that was pretty much the status quo. Um, in El Salvador in 1977, when Romero became archbishop, the the country was um, basically uh, going through yet another fraudulent election that was essentially just passing power from one mili military dictator to another, and the the military had for some decades not faced much resistance because of. Um, tremendous bloodshed back uh, many, many years ago that that um, tamped down resistance. But by 1977, there were um, virtually every sector of society was, um, you know, was was rising up some most the overwhelming majority in nonviolent ways, um, calling on reforms in every sector of society. Um, but because that was so frequently met with violence by the the governing military, eventually over time, more and more people um, joined uh, the armed resistance. That in 1977 was was actually quite small, but there there but there was an armed resistance, and and they were carrying out audacious um, kidnappings of wealthy people, uh, sometimes murders of wealthy people. Um, sometimes bombings. Um, so there was sort of that kind of, um, you know, guerrilla warfare going on on a, uh, by a small number of people, but it was enough to um, make those in power um, and those both with economic power and with governing military power um, really uh, caused uh, them to ramp up the repression rather than uh, enacting reforms um, that could have uh, changed society for the better. And so that was the that was the situation um, that Romero confronted when when he became Archbishop of San Salvador. And he, as you said, there were a lot of people who thought that he was going to be rather conservative. Um, there, you know, his history up to that point, um, you know, did not make him some sort of, uh, you know, arch conservative, outspoken arch conservative. But I think he was seen as someone who probably wasn't going to rock the boat very much. Um, in in El Salvador at that time, the Catholic Church was so powerful um, that the uh, the vatican's the the papal nuncio the vatican's ambassador to el salvador actually would meet with 
uh, members of the military government and uh, members of the economic elites, what were called the oligarchs, and would actually meet with them and, and talk to them about who should be chosen as archbishop. And they were overwhelmingly um, in favor of Romero uh, being archbishop instead of uh, another person who was uh, more um, supported by the uh, the priests that, who were um, – you know, at the grassroots level and interacting with um, the broader population of El Salvador. So, so Romero was seen as kind of a safe choice for the military government and for the oligarchs. Um, and so it came as quite a surprise, I think, to many of them when just weeks into um, his time as archbishop, um, Romero became quite outspoken about the military repression. Um, and and that then I think I think he would have been targeted regardless. But I think this sense of betrayal um, probably increased the anger against him because uh, those who helped to put him um, in as archbishop didn't think that he would uh, turn on them the way that he did. Dang, the politics of El Salvador are pretty interesting, to say the least. Um but uh, Oscar Romero himself had some pretty interesting political opinions. So just like you said, he wasn't really a Marxist, even though people, you know, called him one. Um, could you tell us a little bit about his politics and um, maybe how anti-communism came to play in him being vilified and ultimately killed? Yeah. So, in fact, on uh, I taking the, you know, the guidance from from those who knew him, um, I actually try to uh, avoid using the word politics when talking about Romero. Um, I, I actually quote um, one of the Jesuit priests in, um, in the book um, when we asked him that very question uh, at the trial. Um, and his answer was that Romero was not a political person. He was, um, he believed following the dictates of the Catholic Church, and that started with um, the Vatican II in the 1960s um, and the, the the major changes that were enacted um, in the Catholic Church worldwide, but then in particular um, in the uh, Latin American Bishops Conference in 1968 in Medellin, Colombia, um, where there was where the church at the highest levels was dedicating itself to the poor um, and that was something that Romero took very seriously. Um, he actually didn't take it to the extremes that others did. Um, some who were uh, linked uh, to liberation theology, which is we'll we'll, we'll definitely talk about. Um, there were, you know, there were some priests who even went so far as joining um, armed rebellions in in Central America, uh, but that was not Romero. Romero believed very strongly that um, the theology of the Catholic Church at that time required him to commit himself to the poor and to speak out against repression. Um, and he, I don't think that he saw himself as being political at all. He saw himself as um, as doing his job as, uh, as archbishop um, in following the teachings of the Catholic Church. And so 
I think that it was really others who attributed what he did and what he said to politics. Um, so certainly he was condemned, um, in, and it, it may seem hard for people to believe, uh, you know, nowadays, and in, in if, if you're talking in a North American context, um, but he, he and other priests were denounced very clearly as Marxists, um, as communists, as traitors, as terrorists. And this was not, um, <laughs> you know, this was not a, a, a random stray uh, Twitter comment, right? This, these were in the biggest newspapers in El Salvador. Um, and it's so so Romero and, and other priests who felt that they were um, doing what they were required to do um, based on Catholic teachings, they were then branded with political labels that not only didn't fit them in terms of uh, <laughs> where they might even fall on a political spectrum, but the fact is that they weren't necessarily um, trying to be political per se. Um, certainly, Romero was aware of the politics around him, and, and I think very aware of what his what were the consequences of his actions. Um, but he he adhered always very closely to um, the line that that yes, there need to did need to be um, economic liberation. In other words, there needed to be a focus on the poor and improving their lives and um, a, redistribu a redistribution of wealth. But he was not looking at it from a Marxist angle because he was always very clear that there had to be a spiritual liberation, a spiritual component um, to that that simply you know, didn't exist in in atheistic uh, Marxism. And so, um, you know, he did he wrote about Marxism and he he analyzed it and in his earlier days was um, harshly critical of of Marxism and in later years I think had a more nuanced view but always um, you know rejected the uh, the atheism of of Marxism uh, even if some of his um, beliefs or some of his teachings might align with some economic aspects of Marxism. Nonetheless, uh, everybody in El Salvador at that time who was calling for reforms, um, even quite moderate reforms, uh, was branded with that label of communist or Marxist. Um, and that then made them uh, what, <laughs> what people believed were then legitimate targets uh, for extermination in that sort of repressive environment. Uh, cool. Well, that helps um, definitely give us a little bit of a wider understanding of um, Romero and maybe why he is not as political as some people think. Um, but could you broadly describe just the assassination of St. Romero and help us get a grasp on like what happened there, um, who assassinated him and why? Yeah, the the assassination um, is, is one of those things that um, there's still a lot of uh, mystery around it in terms of who actually pulled the trigger and and who might have you know given the original order for him to be killed but uh in fact those who killed him uh who carried it out and the general um you know, group that 
was responsible for are actually very well known and have been for for quite a while. So um, Romero was killed by um, a death squad that was headed by a man named Roberto Davison, and and we'll I'm sure talk more about him. Um, but Davison was an extreme anti-communist and was <clears throat> and became sort of the face of anti-communism in El Salvador. And while he was a public figure and eventually a politician, um, in 1980, he was also uh, running this death squad and running clandestine operations. And it was a, a group of his people, uh, his chief of security and uh, other a few other people who were very close to him who uh, decided to carry out the assassination on March 24th, 1980. And what was unique about Romero's assassination uh, in El Salvador at that time was that it was carried out by uh, a single marksman uh, with a, uh, a single rifle shot. Um, most death squad operations in El Salvador at that time were um, carried out by a group of people uh, with automatic weapons who would, you know, burst into someone's house and um, shoot up the place and usually kill multiple people and, and then leave. Romero's assassination was different because there was, um, you know, one car sent to the church where Romero was saying mass. And uh, there was uh, one driver uh, and the the shooter was sitting in the back seat and they just pulled up in front of the church and with a single gunshot, um, Romero was killed. And um, and then the car was able to drive away and, um, and eventually um, reconnected with the, the chief of security and, and eventually later um, down the road with with Dobbyson. And so it was a it was a unique sort of assassination in El Salvador at that time, but it was also all the more appalling because Romero was shot while he was saying mass um, in the Divina Providencia Chapel, uh, which was on the grounds of a cancer hospital. Um, where Romero chose to live. And so it was, it was a, um, the assassination itself was, was, was appalling because of that. But then also because if you could kill the most important Catholic figure in a very Catholic country, it sent the signal that, that anybody could be killed. Um, and and there is no doubt that that was uh, a message that they were trying to send to terrorize uh, the the country and terrorize uh, those who might want to speak out. Um, so they they silenced Romero, who was probably the most important voice in the country, while at the same time then um, terrorizing others and trying to silence others. And and the fact is that what it did was it it ended up leading to um, a, a full-on civil war, uh, basically at the beginning of the next year. The, Romero was one of the few people um, who might have been able to hold together the different extremes of the country, and by eliminating him, 
they were eliminating one of the most important voices or one of the most important bridges in the country uh, and therefore making it much more likely that that the country would end up in a full-on civil war and that's what happened yeah uh thanks for laying all that out i mean it is such a haunting image and you describe it quite a bit in your book uh just the events leading up to it um another thing that kind of makes your book just really compelling is the way that you're able to dramatize both romero's life and the challenges around prosecuting people who are involved in romero's death so you know as you were telling the story just now it's like there's there's one driver you know one shooter uh there's a sort of loose timeline of, of events but putting that all together was was quite difficult um so why why was it difficult to bring his killers to justice in particular and uh why was your legal team involved you were saying you were you work as a human rights lawyer you know why exactly would you take on a a case like this and how did that pan out the the context for the case that happened that we were involved in in the u.s um you have to first look at what was going on in el salvador and that's part of why it made it important for this case to happen in the united states so in el salvador at the end of the civil war um in 1992 um there was eventually a uh, a truth commission, a United Nations Truth Commission that was created and uh, was actually quite detailed about uh, a number of the key human rights violations that happened during the course of the war. And one of their you know one of their most important cases was Romero's assassination. and and the Truth Commission named names of those who were responsible. But then five days after the Truth Commission report came out, in 1993, uh, the Salvadoran legislature, which was then um, controlled by the political party that was founded by Roberto Davison, the mastermind of the Romero assassination, uh, and perhaps unsurprisingly, um, the the legislature passed an amnesty law, a sweeping amnesty law that basically prevented the chance of any prosecution uh, for for any of the grave crimes that happened during the Civil War, but in particular for Romero's assassination. One of the people uh, who was involved, the, the who was Davison's chief of security, was named Alvaro Saravia. And Saravia had, uh, during the 80s, actually had a case opened against him uh, in El Salvador, although it didn't end up uh, going anywhere. Um, and if there's time, maybe I'll tell that story. But... Um, so Saravia, uh, because of the amnesty law, had his case closed in El Salvador. Um, no one else was ever uh, attempted to be prosecuted. And, and from 1993 forward, there was basically no, no possibility of bringing a case because the amnesty law would have prevented it. So when in 2001, it became known uh, that Alvaro Saravia was actually living in the United States. And one of the stories that I tell in the book, which is just uh, kind of an amazing coincidence, is that somebody, uh, a Salvadoran man who was working uh, with the Center for Justice and Accountability, the, the nonprofit organization where, where I would start working soon thereafter, uh, he was in a lawyer's office in San Francisco um, and in that same law office, he saw Alvaro Saravia, um, and he knew that Saravia was linked to the Romero assassination. 
so it was quite quite a, a crazy coincidence. And then uh, several months later, the Miami Herald uh, ran a story naming uh, Saravia as being in the United States and said that he was actually in Modesto, California. So it was his presence in California that was the reason that CJA started investigating the case. And, and the reason that CJA did that was, was because the mandate of the organization was to um, hold war criminals uh, and other human rights abusers uh, accountable uh, in U.S. courts. And the with that mandate and with the fact that there was complete impunity in El Salvador and Romero's assassination was never going to uh, go uh, be prosecuted to go to trial in El Salvador. There was a, a strong belief at CJA and then um, amongst people in the Salvadoran community who knew about it, uh, that the case was really important to bring in the United States. And so that was what launched the investigation that eventually led to, um, to the case against uh, Saravia. So prosecuting these cases is extremely difficult when you're confronted with, okay, one, an amnesty law in the country where it happened, so, so nothing's going to happen there. Um, secondly, with the passage of time, so by the time the case actually got filed in the United States, it had been 24 years um, since Romero's assassination. So uh, memories have faded, evidence has been lost. Um, but then on top of that, you have an incredible fear and great danger for people in El Salvador um, who might know something about the assassination uh, to speak about it. And um, so even though it was 23, 24 years later, um, even though there was a civilian government in place at that point in El Salvador, um, many people were still terrified um, you know, to speak about the Romero assassination or, or any of the other human rights abuses, including the many massacres that happened in El Salvador during the war. So all of those elements um, plus the fact that usually there are not um, people involved who are willing to, to speak about it. Um, and in fact, there often are um, public, not only denials, but misinformation about who was responsible for, for these atrocities. And so all of those different factors make um, investigating and prosecuting these cases uh, extremely difficult. And... Um, we ran into a lot of those uh, a lot of those difficulties, um, but but even, but having access to the U.S. court system at least made it somewhat easier than say it would have been to you know for a Salvadoran prosecutor to try and bring the case there. Um, so it's just it's a very it's very very complex um, to to try to put together these cases, and um, you know you're it's an uphill battle from the beginning. Yeah, this is so wild. What a what a absolutely just crazy story. Um I'm like just astounded sitting here. I haven't looked at the book too, so I'm double sounded. Um So trials are kind of a weird thing, especially in this situation. So we got this guy, Saravia, and um he is, you know, involved and guilty. Um, so maybe you could tell us maybe, okay, maybe you could tell us, uh, on the one hand, like, just like what happened in the trial and, um, you know, what the verdict of the trial was. 
but but then maybe you give us like a, a larger kind of understanding of you know what this means or um who else might be culpable for romero's death or like you know what else is going on here yeah the um so so i'll, I'll try and explain the trial because it was a it was it was quite unique so uh you know most people think of a trial um you know where the defendant is sitting there and uh you know he has a lawyer um and then there's you know either prosecutors or plaintiffs lawyers on the other side um and uh, you know all the things that we're used to on tv or in the news um the difference in our case was that uh, there was no defendant there and there was no defense lawyer there. And uh, I'll, I'll maybe explain it really quickly without hopefully getting into too many boring legal details. But the case that we brought in the United States was actually a civil lawsuit. So it was not a criminal prosecution where Saravia was arrested and sent to jail. Um, instead, it was a civil lawsuit that that basically sought um you know, a judgment and then um, money damages, you know, essentially compensation uh, for Romero's assassination. And the reason that it was a civil lawsuit is because at the time in the United States, um, you couldn't actually bring a criminal prosecution for this type of a case. It was a murder that happened in El Salvador and was committed by uh, Salvadorans against a Salvadoran. And so uh the presence of Alvaro Saravia in the United States was by itself not enough uh, for there to be a criminal case. And even if there ha- even if there had been proper laws for that, um, that still would have depended on um, on government prosecutors in the United States being willing to do that. So what was available to us was um, was a civil lawsuit under, some rather interesting laws that I, I won't get into right now, but um, that was the avenue that that we were able to pursue. And um, so our client was a relative of, of Oscar Romero, and it was in that person's name that, that we were bringing the case. Uh, and so the trial, what happened was that and, you know, I, I tell the story in the book of uh, of trying to locate Saravia and the fact that we were sure we knew where he was. We knew what address he was living at. We had plenty of evidence uh, on that, but we never actually saw him in person before we started the case. But because of all these connections to an address in Modesto, California, the court said that we could continue with the case, even though we hadn't actually uh, seen him. We always anticipated that he would eventually come forward and and at least try and defend some aspect of the case. Uh, but in fact, he never actually did. Um, some of I, th- I, I hope some of the more interesting parts of the book were the investigation that we did and, and the information that we uncovered about where he actually was. Um, but nonetheless, we were able to take the case to trial, even though he wasn't there because it was a civil lawsuit. If it had been a criminal case, um, the U.S. Constitution would have prohibited prohibited the trial for ha- from happening in his absence. But because it was a civil lawsuit, we were able to, to take it to trial. And the judge uh, actually gave us several days in court 
to be able to present our evidence. And, and I think that was, he didn't have to do that. And it was, it was quite significant that he did because I think he understood the, the historical importance of doing this. I think he understood what an important figure Romero was and, and he understood that no one had ever been put on trial um, for this very famous, uh, very impactful murder that happened in El Salvador. And so the, the trial ended up going forward even in the absence of Saravia, and we were able to put on, um, you know, somewhat strong evidence about the assassination itself, a lot of evidence about Romero and who he was and what his impact was and what the impact of his assassination was. Um, but we we also, through our investigation, um, were able to speak with uh the judge in El Salvador who had been assigned the day of the assassination to, to go and investigate the murder and who only a few days later um, had to flee El Salvador because there was an assassination attempt against him. Um, so he testified at our, at our trial, as did um, a number of other people who were, who were very close to Romero um, and through uh, the the biggest surprise of our investigation, um, we actually located the getaway driver from the assassination, and he came to court and testified um, about what happened the day of the murder. So um, that was that was the trial that we were able to to put on, and at the end of it, um, the judge. Uh, found that Saravia was legally responsible um, you know, for Romero's murder, um, found that Roberto Davison was the mastermind of the assassination, um, and entered a verdict in our favor. And uh, like I said, it was a civil lawsuit, and so he attached a dollar figure to it of, of $10 million. Uh, so that was the, that was the trial. Um, but as you know, as you mentioned in your question, there are um, several other people who were responsible for the assassination. Uh, Roberto Davison by that time had died. He died in 1992, so he was no longer alive. There are uh, there there was at least one other very well known person, uh, very connected to the assassination, who had also died. Um, there. There is one person in particular who, um, while he has always denied having any role in Romero's assassination, uh, the evidence says otherwise. And he uh, he is uh, alive and, and living freely in El Salvador. Um, there are a handful of other people who could uh, very easily be investigated uh, in El Salvador and and have links to the assassination. What we were hoping to do with our case and what we tried to do with our case was um, to essentially go up the chain of command. So we knew that Roberto Davison's death squad that carried out Romero's assassination did not exist in a vacuum. Uh, his uh, His death squad was supported and financed by uh, wealthy oligarchs in El Salvador. 
And there was evidence about the support that his death squad got. Because of that, um, you know, because of the the social situation in El Salvador and the fact that this these wealthy elites, these oligarchs, essentially ran ran the country in conjunction with the military, and because they supported many of them supported death squad activities, we hoped through our case to be able to bring um, bring in as defendants those who might have financed Romero's assassination. And that was uh, a big focus of our investigation for over a year. Um, and I talk about it at length in the book in terms of the ev- some of the evidence that we were able to gather, but also, you know, as we discussed before, the difficulty of prosecuting these cases and bringing investigation uh, in, in carrying out, you know, complete investigations. And at the end of the day, despite um, the evidence that existed um, and some new evidence that we found, we weren't able to um, put together enough evidence to bring anyone else into the case, uh, you know, including uh, powerful people who, you know, who might have uh, financed the assassination. So there are still um, uh, there, there is still a need for a widespread uh, and serious investigation in El Salvador, uh, not just into those who were there planning it that day, not just into who pulled the trigger, but into who were the people higher up who were uh, who had given the order uh, or supported or funded the death squad that carried out the assassination. That's where a serious investigation is needed. Um, but a serious investigation hasn't been done by prosecutors. Um, and, and it, and it remains to be done. Uh, if we're ever going to truly get to the bottom of the Romero assassination and break, break the impunity that's existed for so long in El Salvador. Thanks so much for, for putting that out. I mean, one of the most compelling things about the book is not just the story about Romero that you tell, but exactly that, that story of all these investigations. I mean, you guys really clearly did your homework, uh, and that comes through. Um, something else that comes through in your book is the 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 wide role of, of political connections surrounding Romero's death, not just in El Salvador, but also in the United States. And as people who think about the left and that sort of thing on this podcast a lot, we're pretty invested in that conversation. So could you say something a little bit about maybe not just the culpability of, of individuals in El Salvador, but also the role of, you know, U.S. Uh, foreign policy and, and imperialist sort of ties that might have been uh, responsible some way or another for Romero's death? Yeah, that's that's really important uh, context here, and and maybe I'll I'll go back a little bit into to history uh, because there's also so it's it's really important to talk about the U.S. role uh, both for the culpability of the United States, but also I think to uh, to clarify sometimes some of the misperceptions about what role the U.S. did or didn't play. Um, so uh, I. You know, in in the book, I kind of choose the starting point as uh, John F. Kennedy's administration, um, and uh, you know, I, I think you can go even farther back than that. But but certainly, um, Kennedy came in at a time right after uh, the Cuban Revolution, and 
it can't be overstated the impact um, of what happened in Cuba uh, on the United States that had always seen Latin America as as its backyard. Um, and that's something that the Monroe Doctrine was about and 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 continued uh, you know throughout the 20th century. Um, and, and in the Cold War context, um, Kennedy uh, and later Johnson and other administrations after um, saw anti-communism uh, as an absolutely essential and central part of foreign policy, particularly, I mean, obviously in other countries, Vietnam and, and many other countries, but most, very definitely in Latin America. Um, U.S. governments did not want, uh, you know, another Cuban revolution to happen anywhere else in Latin America. And, um, you know, there there are plenty of examples in other countries of democratically elected people um, in Guatemala, in Chile, um, whose governments were owned, overthrown with U.S. government assistance. Um, but the... Kennedy's administration in, in going forward um, actually uh, trained militaries throughout Latin America, including El Salvador's, in um, counterinsurgency techniques, in counterintelligence techniques, basically, you know, how to confront uh, guerrilla armies, uh, leftist guerrilla armies, and, uh, you know, how to hold them at bay. Um and so it was that sort of doctrine, what was what was later called the national security doctrine, um, was what led to the development of military policies in Latin America and then eventually to paramilitary organizations um, that basically became death squads. And so the, you know, in El Salvador, the the death squad apparatus uh was there throughout the 19, you know, developed in the 1960s into the 1970s. And that apparatus was then, uh, you know, accessed by, by death squads. And so the, the death squad that killed uh, Oscar Romero, um, you know, that it, it, I don't, I have never seen any evidence that the U S government had any direct role in uh, you know, in Romero's assassination or in that death squad's activities in particular. But it's that that context of uh, anti-communism uh, and, and military training uh, that is important in what, you know, what resulted in the death squads in El Salvador. Um, the other, and, and then, but, you know, I'll, maybe I'll come back to, to sort of going forward, but another important link with the United States is that um, the, so while Roberto Davison was running his death squad, but also was a vocal and public uh, anti-communist crusader, um, he was making links, you know, he had the support of and, and continued to make links with economic elites in El Salvador. And they, uh, in turn, uh, began making connections with political figures in the United States. Um, generally, uh, you know, 
on the far right of the Republican Party. Um, Senator Jesse Helms is, is one of the, the key examples of that. Um, many of the oligarchs in El Salvador had already had strong connections with the United States. Many of them went to uh, went to school in the United States. Many spoke perfect English, um, had second homes, uh, you know, in Miami or elsewhere. So there were already strong connections with the United States uh, on that level. And then in the late 1970s and into the 1980s, um, Davison and his supporters began uh, holding meetings and having and strengthening ties um, with with political figures in Washington. So all of that is is important uh, in in understanding <clears throat> the U.S. role. Uh, what I will say is there there are many people who uh, remember Romero's assassination as uh, taking place during the Reagan administration. And I've you know when I was when I've given talks about. Uh, about the book, um, you know, I've had people ask questions that are essentially saying, well, is, you know, isn't it true that Reagan killed Romero? And I have to remind people that, in fact, Reagan wasn't president when Romero was assassinated. It was Jimmy Carter. Um, and, and Carter's foreign policy, um, you know, again, these things are so complex, but but Carter's foreign policy um, was, was was both supportive of Romero, but also um, supportive of those who were against Romero. So, you know, Jimmy Carter's uh, foreign policy famously incorporated human rights for the first time, um, but his human rights, uh, you know, that element of foreign policy, um, while important and to be applauded, was also, uh, you know, left to the side many times uh, because, uh, you know, again, uh, they, Jimmy Carter's uh, administration didn't want to see uh, Cuban revolutions and lots of other Latin American countries. And uh, in fact, the Sandinistas in Nicaragua took over um, in 1979. And, uh, and at that point, the United States uh, wanted to make sure that absolutely that El Salvador didn't also fall. And so, um, you know, Carter's Carter sent an ambassador to El Salvador uh, in early 1980, Robert White, who was in charge of fortifying the center. In other words, avoiding a, a civil war. And, uh, and, and Ambassador White saw Oscar Romero as being an absolutely key figure in the center that might be able to hold the country together. Um, and in fact, he White was outspoken uh, that the far right was the biggest threat to the country. Um, but at the same time, there was uh, Carter's administration provided uh, aid to the Salvadoran military. And that was uh, aid that that Oscar Romero famously denounced uh, in a letter to Jimmy Carter that he then read publicly uh, about a month before he was assassinated. So it was a very complex um, situation there. Uh, and then you know, obviously, once uh, Ronald Reagan defeated Jimmy Carter and took over, um, that was when El Salvador, uh, you know, entered into a full-on civil war uh, with disastrous consequences of uh, of military aid from the United States that was far, far beyond anything that had ever been seen before, um, and and you know, helped lead to 
just widespread atrocities and massacres that happened throughout the 1980s. Um, but, you know, and, and, and you know, whatever uh, the, the many negative things that we can say about the Reagan administration's role in El Salvador, uh, I just always need to point out that, in fact, um, you know, it was uh, Jimmy Carter who was president when when Romero was assassinated and uh, and in a, um, a, a rather complex, uh, you know, situation in terms of the U.S. role and, and U.S. foreign policy at the time. Yeah, I think that's a helpful thing to point out. Um, that definitely uh, makes the the picture a little bit more complicated, but uh, still pretty interesting. Well, you talk in your book um, about how the people behind Romero's murder were and continue to be normalized by politicians in the United States. Uh, Roberto de Abazin, uh, in particular, was praised by people like Elliot Abrams, who now serves as the U.S. special envoy to Venezuela. Um, really recently, Ilan Omar challenged Abrams about U.S. policy in El Salvador and uh, what, something that he called, uh, he's, he called the, uh, you know, the sort of political inheritance of El Salvador a fabulous achievement. Um, but as someone who worked on this case, how do you react to people like Abrams not only being allowed to stay in government, but to be appointed to oversee a fragile situation in a Latin American country like Venezuela? Well, you know, when you when you know the history of of Central America and particularly, uh, you know, what happened there in the 1980s, uh, you know, it's it's pretty appalling to see uh, someone like Elliot Abrams uh kind of constantly recycled um and and even though some someone with with uh, conviction on his record from Iran Contra um who in my mind has been uh a part of just disastrous uh you know foreign policy decisions uh you know to <laughs> uh not only is it is it kind of appalling to see uh him continue to to pop up again decades later um but but just the the idea that uh, not that oh well we don't have anyone else to go to so let's let's go to him uh but in fact that that the policies that that he was a part of and and many others were a part of um are seen as as successful um and and i guess when you you know if you see it through the uh, extremely simplistic lens of Cold War communist versus anti-communist. Um, you know, I guess in that context, if the fact that the um, FLM, FMLN um, guerrillas never actually took over uh, by military force in El Salvador, well, then I guess that's a success if that's all you were looking for. Um, but the fact that 75,000 civilians were murdered um, during the Civil War in El Salvador, um, millions of people fled, um, and and lives in the country were utterly destroyed um, in large part um, through U.S. support for um, – the repressive Salvadoran military that was carrying out massacres. Uh, in fact, U.S. government denial um, of massacres even occurring or denying that they were the responsibility of the armed forces in El Salvador. Um, you know, all of those things uh, show the tremendous price and just the the, the truly horrifying uh, nature of 
what U.S. you know U.S. policy was at that time, um, and so if you're you know if you're seeing it simply through a lens of oh well we didn't let the insurgents win um, then if that's a success then that's that's a that's an incredibly oversimplified way of uh, of looking at things and what it does is it um, lends credence to the idea that um, that supporting um, repressive regimes is the way to go. Um, that is, uh, I think that's entirely, uh, entirely unacceptable. Um, I, I, I will say just to, just to add to the complexity of the situation. Um, and again, you can, uh, say overwhelmingly that, uh, us policy in 19, the 1980s in El Salvador was, uh, you know, with the military support was, was catastrophic. Um, but it is interesting also that there were aspects of the reality uh, where the Reagan administration did um, did take some steps, uh, very belated and uh, and not fully effective, but um, did take some steps in trying to see some uh, cases, including uh, Romero's assassination, prosecuted in El Salvador. Now there are a many there are many many reasons for that, and it, it wasn't I don't think out of the goodness of the hearts of uh, high-ranking people in the Reagan administration. A lot of it had to do with pressure from Congress um, to uh, to see that human rights uh, prosecutions were carried out uh, in order to keep the military aid flowing to the Salvadoran military, and I get into that in quite a bit of detail in the book. Um, uh, but it is it is interesting that um, while um, while Dobbison was praised by many people on the right uh, in the United States, there was also uh, a great difficulty in uh, supporting him too openly at, at different points because uh, that might have led Congress uh, to to cut off military aid. So there are I, I'm I'm vastly oversimplifying things and i hope that that there's uh more nuance to it in my in my book but uh even under even under reagan uh and as as appalling as the reagan policy was in el salvador there are there are some interesting complexities there uh too which uh, just you know as i was saying with carter i think with reagan too there's um you know, there, there's, there are a lot of different uh, factors, uh, particularly when you're looking at what happened in, in investigating Romero's assassination. So I just thought I would, I would point that out while, while still, uh, you know, strongly denouncing uh, the, the policy that led, uh, that led to continued support of the Salvadoran military and the deaths of tens of thousands of people. Yeah, um, I mean, definitely there's a lot more in the book. You pack a lot in uh, between those two covers, so people who are interested should certainly check that out. Uh, but a question to just kind of round the conversation out. So we were just talking a little bit about how some of the, um, you know, these links of, of imperialism and, and the violence that occurred in El Salvador, many of the people behind that are, uh, you know, still even in, in positions of government in the U.S., or at least people who, who sort of 
tacitly or or explicitly supported that kind of uh, of violence. Um, so that legacy continues to today. But perhaps we could close on on another legacy that continues today, which is Romero's himself. So Romero was recently canonized, as you said at the top of the the show. Um, in the book, which you had published before that, you say that the canonization is imminent as you're as you're writing it. So just kind of thinking through, you know, all the time that you've spent thinking about Romero and all the situations surrounding his death and, and his life. Um, does his canonization change anything about how you or how we should remember both his life and the struggle for justice uh, in in the, you know, the events of his martyrdom and beyond? It, it it does, and 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 his canon is the importance of his canonization can't be overstated. Uh, he's the the first saint ever from El Salvador. He is um, somebody uh, you know who has essentially mythical status um, in El Salvador, and the recognition um, the recognition of his martyrdom and his importance by the Vatican uh, in making him a saint, uh, I think is of tremendous importance to El Salvador. And particularly so because it took so long and had to overcome um, uh, not only politics within the Vatican, but also politics from El Salvador, where there were many people working behind the scenes to see that Romero um, was not made a saint. and. Uh, you know, his cause was uh, far from guaranteed to be successful. Um, and and his uh, his beatification, which is the first step in the process of becoming a saint, was delayed for a very long time. Um, and it, because he was such a controversial figure. Um, so the fact that he that you know, his cause eventually overcame all of those obstacles and he was made a saint, um, I think gives, gives it even, even greater importance. So it's a, it's a tremendous recognition at, um, you know, on such a global level of, of the importance of, of Oscar Romero in El Salvador, in Latin America and, and worldwide. Um, that being said, uh, it, does bring the prospect of, um, you know, some some negative aspects. So one of the things that I, I talk about, I think, in concluding the book is that as, you know, Romero was absolutely vilified by certain sectors of society. Obviously, one sector of society killed him. Um, others, uh, you know, denounced him in the most horrible terms, uh, you know, in newspapers and in media, um, such that at the time of his death, he was certainly not widely accepted uh, in all aspects of, of Salvadoran society as as a hero, even though he was amongst, you know, the, the majority of the population, um, uh, which was were the 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 campesinos, um, the the poor farmers in El Salvador, um, and certainly by people on the left, um, you know he was considered a hero, but but that was not across the board. With his um, with his canonization, and you could see over the years as his cause for sainthood starting started advancing, Romero's um, you know figure in El Salvador became more. Um, more 
centralized more in in the uh, the I guess the the rough edges of his legacy, um, you know, have been smoothed down. Um, when you read one of you know one of the great um, uh, you know pleasures in um, in writing the book was going back and reading his homilies, um, and it is impressive how outspoken Romero was and how pointed he was in his criticism of the military, of the oligarchs, um, even of uh, forces on the left. He was, he uh, did not pull any punches and he, and he was very specific with his criticisms in a way that is, um, I think is, is, is now sometimes uh, forgotten a bit as his, his image is, um, I think sanitized a little bit is a word I used, um, you know, to be a more acceptable and more palatable national figure. Right? His name is on the international airport. So, um, you know, somebody who uh, seems to, uh, you know, have that much appeal across the country well for, uh, you know, people in certain uh, political sectors, uh, you, if you're going to um, recognize someone like that as a national figure where certainly you can't, um, you know, talk about the, the, the strong criticisms that he, uh, that he registered, uh, back when he was alive. And so, um, that is a concern with his canonization is that even as his, uh, legacy, I guess, grows and as he's better known, uh, and, and, you know, becomes such an important historical figure, um, that tends to have the impact of, uh, you know, of maybe um, smoothing out those those sharp edges, I should say, rather than rough edges. Um, and and you don't want to see that happen. And and uh, you know, I I tried to um, use some of his homilies to uh, to make the point that. Uh, you know, there there is a reason that he was so hated uh, by some people in El Salvador, and that's because he denounced them uh, very clearly uh, for what he saw as uh, as wrongful conduct. And um, and so, you know, I hope that uh, he can be remembered for um, for being a true voice of justice um, and, and not just in some sort of generic sense but in in looking at the the um the very specific ways in which he was seeking to end the repression in el salvador and improve the lives of of the salvadoran people and i hope that uh in the long run that that is uh what his legacy will be um thanks so much for uh for that i i hope that as well um certainly it would be great to uh uh to allow more people to come into contact with the specificity of somebody like Romero. Um, I guess we should probably drive everyone back to your book here at the, the end of the hour. Um, it is an amazing text, uh, The Assassination of a Saint. There's lots and lots and lots more detail provided there. Um, and there's also a companion website that we were looking at, too, that has plenty of kind of supplemental um, material. Uh, but we just wanted to say thanks so much for spending this time with us and laying this out. And uh, thanks for the work that you're doing. I mean, it's uh, it's 
it's crazy that it's so difficult to get um, even some kind of modicum of justice in a situation like this. And uh, as your your book shows, um, you and your team seem to have taken it very, very seriously. So thank you for that. Well, thanks very much. I, I really appreciate it. I, I, um, I'm glad you were interested in the book and in our work. And I really appreciate you having me on and, and, uh, and, and highlighting, hiding, highlighting Romero and, and his legacy. So thanks very much. Thanks for listening to The Magnificast. If you like what you heard, you can find us on Twitter. We are at The Magnificast. You can support us on Patreon at patreon.com slash The Magnificast. Uh, you can send us an email at themagnificast at gmail.com. Uh, the music, as always, is by Amori Armstrong and The Illogical Spoon. We'll see you next week. I don't want to get up for church in the morning, church in the morning, souls alive. Heaven come to earth and there won't be no church We'll meet down by the riverside There we'll swim with all creation Never get tired, never bored Don't worry, someday There'll be no dam between us and our Lord Jackson, keep your hoods up Keep your hoods up And you stay up late Jackson, you keep your hoods up, well you keep your hoods up, and you stay up late, oh don't mind, a cold night, but we might mind if you leave too soon, so come on now, it's still early, besides what else are you gonna do? We kissed in the alley by the Michigan theater Fall snow was blowing in the lights of the downtown Saw a spark in your eyes, I just spoke it Said we're gonna turn this whole place upside down Then you said, my dear, do